and welcome back to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we're back again with another really fun show for you all. Pretty stoked about this one, but I don't think I could even possibly be as excited as Emily is. Absolutely no way. I... This has been an absolute blast. I know we say that every week that we have fun researching for the episodes, but this episode has been basically a passion project of mine, and I'm really excited to be able to bring it to all of you. So in case you you don't know, uh, what we're actually doing in this episode is we're looking at the book slash movie, The Da Vinci Code. And we're comparing it with the National Treasure movies. Yes, it should be really good. And and you probably heard the excitement in Emily's voice. So this is really going to be her baby. She's going to lead the conversation today. But before we get started, and we have a lot to talk about, I know, Emily, right? Yes, so much. Yeah, so, so before that, uh, just very quickly, remember that you should subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you find your podcast so that you get new episodes of our show automatically downloaded to your devices every other Wednesday. So that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it. And don't forget to reach out to us on social media. We want to hear your thoughts. You're going to find us on Twitter at NT Hunt Podcast. Indeed. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick us off for those who are unfamiliar with a brief description of the Da Vinci Code. Now, I've done some heavy digging here, and I've made it to the IMDb page for the movie. So I'm actually going to read you the IMDb description, and then I'll fill in a few details. So IMDb says, The murder inside the Louvre and clues in Da Vinci paintings lead to the discovery of a religious mystery protected by a secret society for 2,000 years, which could shake the foundations of Christianity. Now, basically what this is, is it's a movie with Tom Hanks in it. The main character, he plays Professor Robert Langdon. And then our female protagonist here, her name is Sophie. Her grandfather dies at the beginning of this film, leaving them with clues on presumably how to solve his murder. They're not entirely sure. Eventually, they figure out that these clues lead to a treasure, and the treasure is actually tied to the secret of the Holy Grail, which we'll get into a little bit further down. But basically, we have a national treasure type of mystery hunt with clues here leading to a treasure in the end so pretty good book pretty good movie thanks em for that background that's super helpful for me i am not as big of a fan of the da vinci code you know film sort of franchise that exists i learned i didn't know that there's like a robert langdon series of movies yeah yeah Yeah, books so um just for everyone's reference as well The Da Vinci Code film came out in the year 2006. This is two years after the first National Treasure film and one year before National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. The book that Emily mentioned that inspired The Da Vinci Code, which was written by Dan Brown, that was published in 2003. And this is 
important to point out, I think, as I would say the person on the side of national treasure in this conversation, <laughs> that's me. Um, many people out there say that national treasure was created because of the vast success of Dan Brown's book. But remember, that can't be true, as we learned in our previous episode, that National Treasure was being written as early as 1999. So I just want to point that out for everyone before we start getting into the weeds here. <laughs> Indeed, and your point is well taken, Aubrey. Thank you very much for that tidbit of information there. I do what I can. <laughs> so with that, we're going to jump right in. We're going to start by comparing and contrasting basically some of the broader points in the movies. The first being the beginning messages that they start with. So, Aubrey, do you want to tell us about what that was in National Treasure? Oh, I can definitely do that. <laughs> uh, as we all know at this point very well, the first clue in the National Treasure first film was The Secret Lies with Charlotte. And I know that I really enjoy pointing out how circular this clue is because it comes back again at the end of the movie when the Meerschaum pipe that was found on the Charlotte is later used to open the final treasure room. So is that what you're looking for, Em? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And thank you very much for pointing out the circular nature of that clue, because that's something that I actually wanted to point out about the first clue in the Da Vinci Code. So as some of you may or may not know, the first clue in the Da Vinci Code reads 13321-1185. Oh, draconian devil. Oh, lame saint. P.S. Find Robert Langdon. So this is a little bit more complex than The Secret Lies with Charlotte, obviously. The first part is, uh, they actually figure out is the Fibonacci sequence, which ends up being the code that they need to use in order to get a cryptex, which becomes a major plot point in the story, from a safety deposit box at a Zurich bank. Now the second part, O Draconian Devil, actually when you rearrange the letters, reads Leonardo da Vinci. Interestingly, this bit of the text suggests that he was a member of the secret society that they're going to be investigating throughout this story, and that having an understanding of him and his work will be instrumental in solving these series of clues that we're going to see throughout the story. Now, the third part, O Lame Saint, when you rearrange that, that actually says the Mona Lisa. Now, this is interesting because it connects to the search for the Holy Grail, as da Vinci is said to have painted the Mona Lisa kind of in protest to the church's suppression of the supposed real identity of Mary Magdalene. I have comments. Can I provide my comments? Yes. Okay, so few thoughts here. Um, secret society? That's pretty reminiscent of National Treasure, no? I mean, we talk secret societies so much in that film. I know we're going to talk about it more. But immediately, the parallels, even for a novice like myself, uh, should be super evident. You mentioned this this cryptex, which is this big get. It's kind of what we're going for a National Treasure as well, right? With the vast clues and the Declaration of Independence. But I got to criticize a little bit. Oh, no. P.S. Find Robert Langdon, and I'm assuming we're going to talk about this a little bit more. That yes. seems way more straightforward than The Secret Lies with Charlotte. 
you know, iron pen, Mr. Matlack can't offend, <laughs> right? Or, oh, just yes. getting cryptex from a de- deposit box at a bank as opposed to, you know, breaking into the National Archives. Yes, indeed, indeed. The the last, you're, you make a good point. The last line, the P.S. find Robert Langdon, the find Robert Langdon part is a bit on the nose, right? Obviously, that means that Sophie, the female protagonist, needs to go ahead and find Robert Langdon, thus bringing him into the story. So there's not really a secret there. Now, the fun part, though, is actually that this last line can actually be thought of as circular, much as the clue in National Treasure, the secret lies with Charlotte. So whether or not the characters actually immediately realized it, or even ever realized the circular nature of the clue, the PS Find Robert Langdon is really the key here. So in the beginning, Langdon hypothesizes that the PS actually stands for the Priory of Scion. Now, the Priory of Scion is that secret society that I mentioned earlier and that you were talking about bears resemblance to National Treasure, Aubrey. Now, Langdon's hypothesis isn't completely wrong because the Priory of Scion is heavily involved in the mystery. However, later the characters kind of figure out that the PS might also stand for Princess Sophie, which is what her grandfather actually used to call her as a child. What the characters don't realize at the time that they figure this out is that this portion of the clue comes back at the end of the story when it's revealed that Sophie is actually one of the last living descendants of Jesus's royal bloodline, essentially making her a princess. Hence, Princess Sophie becomes a circular clue. Okay, I have another thought. So, love that. And like the circular nature of it, I can fully appreciate that. But also, I can't be the only one to think, since I'm trying to get to abstract parallels here. So we have Ben Gates being related to Thomas Gates from the very wee beginnings of this mystery, back when The Secret Lies of Charlotte was being uttered by Charles Carroll's lips, basically, before he (laughs) dies. Um, So it's, you have the historical connection and the family bloodline there, as well as this Sophie character and her bloodline. That's true. I didn't even realize that. Wow. That's a great point. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Well done. But yes, something else that these stories actually have in common is their mention of the Knights of Templar legend and the associated treasure. Now, I think you'll find this part particularly fascinating, Aubrey. So if you can go ahead and tell us a little bit about what the Knights of Templar and the treasure are in National Treasure, that would be swell. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll keep it brief since if anyone wants more detail, they can check out some of our past episodes. But basically, the Knights of Templar treasure in National Treasure was said to have originated as far back as ancient Egypt and have it was said to have changed hands multiple times in really, really ancient history, making its way into Europe under the Temple of Solomon, where the Knights Templar found it. They smuggled it out of Europe. It ended up in America, where the Freemasons were protecting it. We know that it ended up underneath Trinity Church for Ben Gates and crew to find in 2004, you know, many, many hundreds of years later. But this treasure, we learn, of course, was literally that. It was a treasure. It's like what any five-year-old kid thinks of when they think of treasure. (laughs) Gold, idols, scrolls, artifacts, shiny stuff, right? 
Um, yeah. So it's and it's really if you think about the way this treasure was accumulated over time, it is a treasure of history, right? So it like mm. the artifacts that it contains are from these critical important civilizations in world history is that what you're going for that <laughs> that's that's, that's perfect Aubrey thank you very much that's exactly what I was going for so what we can do is kind of contrast this with what we see in the da Vinci Code so in the da Vinci Code the Knights of Templar are also mentioned they talk a lot about the Templar treasure and they actually talk about how the Knights of Templar once they move the treasure around, as is said to have happened in National Treasure, they actually were supposedly the kind of army branch of this Priory of Scion, which is, as I mentioned, the main kind of secret society that are in the Da Vinci Code. Now, so, so sorry, to clarify, so the Templars are related to the Priory of Scion in this story? Yes, they are. Okay. They are the military branch of the Priory of Scion. But the big thing, and the same thing that happens in National Treasure, is that the Knights of Templar are supposed to be protecting this treasure in some way, which is what's leading to all of these clues that are essentially hiding the location of the treasure. Now, speaking of the treasure, you mentioned that the treasure in National Treasure, realizing that I'm saying treasure a lot, actually is a treasure founded on history. And what's really interesting is that in the Da Vinci Code, the treasure is founded more on religion. So the treasure here is what is known as the Sangreal documents. And they're said to tell the other side of Christ's story. So basically this is tens of thousands of pages of information about the life of Jesus that describe him as actually fully human. So you can imagine that the church probably wanted to cover this up a bit. And it was the Knights of Templar's job to protect this and make sure that the church couldn't destroy it over the years. Now, we have mentions of the genealogy of the early descendants of Christ. And lastly, we have this connection of the Templar treasure with the Holy Grail. So some people might be familiar with the Holy Grail. That's something we hear in Arthurian legend a lot. But here in the Da Vinci Code, they actually connect the Templar treasure with it. And this is quoting directly from the book. They said that the quest for the Holy Grail is literally the quest to kneel before the bones of Mary Magdalene. So the hiding place of the Holy Grail was actually a tomb containing the body of Mary Magdalene and the documents that tell the true story of her life. And at the heart of the quest for this Holy Grail, the characters say, has always been a quest for Mary Magdalene and for her family to be able to, to claim its rightful power. Yes, the audience cannot see this because I realize that we're just in your ears right now, guys, but Aubrey keeps, uh, I can see her on my screen, keeps raising her hand. Uh, so when I call on Aubrey, that that's why. Yes, Aubrey, you have a point you would like to make. A tomb, you say? There is a, a tomb. tomb. There is a tomb. Almost like how they had to break into the Parkington Lane crypt in National Treasure to get to the treasure room. Hmm. Quite possibly very similar. My gosh, I'm on a roll. <laughs> You're doing great. Um, but on that note, in all seriousness, we mentioned the National Treasure treasure being buried beneath the major landmark in New York City that is Trinity Church. But I will also point out that 
there's another you know nominal parallel in that in the Da Vinci Code we also see the quote unquote treasure being buried beneath uh, a major landmark, right? Yes. So in the Da Vinci Code, the the final treasure is buried beneath the Pyramide en Versailles at the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. And so if you're not familiar with this, basically there's a, an iconic glass pyramid in the courtyard of the Louvre, and it's basically reflected underground, and there's an inverse pyramid that goes beneath it underground. And so that's the Pyramide en Versailles. And that's the landmark where the Da Vinci Code treasure is located. Yeah, supposedly where all the Sangreal documents are um, located along with Mary Magdalene's tomb. We don't recommend trying to find them at the Louvre. No, no, I wouldn't recommend trying to find either of these treasures, quite honestly. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the one, the, they've both basically been found already, so we don't know that they're still there. <laughs> But also, it seems the, the lengths that the characters in both of these stories have to go to to basically get access to the place where these treasures are hidden is, is quite extreme. So it's true. strongly recommend against. Yeah, just enjoy the film. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so how about now we talk a little bit about history and how history is used in the two films. We spent an entire episode, episode two of our show, delving into historical accuracies in the first National Treasure film. But I think there are some parallels we can draw with the Da Vinci Code here as well. Do you agree? I totally agree, Aubrey. Okay, so if you are a fan of either of these films, you probably know that both National Treasure and the Da Vinci Code have been criticized for their portrayals of history for various reasons. But I will say that the criticism of the Da Vinci Code seems to go much further <laughs> than the criticism of National <laughs> Treasure. And I venture two guesses for why that is the case. The first is, as Emily mentioned, it tells an alternative religious history, which is inherently sensitive and touchy. So you know, Emily noted how there, it's a plot point in the Da Vinci Code that they were trying to prevent the church from destroying these documents. Well, the the real church in real life wasn't necessarily thrilled about the the movie and the Dan Brown book either. So it's a it's a touchy subject. Another reason that I think the Da Vinci Code draws more criticism is at the beginning of the novel, again, that inspired the movie. <sighs> Dan Brown makes a, uh, I would call it a bold claim. Bold, very bold. So he claims that the Priory of Sion is a real organization and all descriptions of the artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. And let's just say that all of those claims are hotly contested by academics of history. <laughs> yes, they for sure are. So why don't we take this as an opportunity to use some of the information we learned from the last history episode that we did, as well as some information we found for this episode to talk historical accuracy. Um, what is still comparable between the two stories based on history and where did we diverge from the truth? Okay, so ciphers. Aubrey, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Ottendorf cipher <laughs> For everyone's reference, we're laughing because Emily can't seem to get the Ottendorf cipher conversation out of her mouth right now. So, uh, 
I volunteer as tribute. Wrong movie. Um, so as we know, in National Treasure, the Ottendorf Cipher plays a really important role in the treasure hunt. So as Emily told us in our Deep Dive on History episode, the Ottendorf Cipher is a variation of a substitution cipher that became really popular in the era of the Revolutionary War. And we harped on this before because we were really impressed that the timing of when this cipher was popular in history really did seem to match up with um, when the clues would have been developed in the plot line of the National Treasure story. So, um, so what kind of cipher are we using in the Da Vinci Code? It's not the same one, is it? No, unfortunately, it is not the Ottendorf cipher that we're using in the Da Vinci Code. However, in the Da Vinci Code, they also use a substitution cipher. The substitution cipher that they use is known as the Atbash cipher. Now, interestingly, pertaining to the kind of religious religious vein of the treasure in the Da Vinci Code, Atbash has biblical connections, which makes a lot of sense for the time period of the treasure and the fact that it had these religious affiliations. So the Atbash cipher is a simple substitution cipher. Now I say simple, take that with a grain of salt, because I'm pretty sure that any type of substitution cipher, or any cipher for that matter, is not quite that simple. However, this is a substitution cipher that's based on the Hebrew alphabet. So in this cipher, the first letter is actually substituted by the last letter. The second letter is substituted by the next to last letter, and so forth. This type of cipher actually dates back to 500 BC, which, if we start to think about things, means that the time period during which this could occur makes sense. I, uh, I see in my notes here that there's a quote you want to read. <laughs> there is, yes. So, okay. This is directly from page 304 of the Da Vinci Code. Atbash is sublimely appropriate, Tebing said. Text encrypted with Atbash is found throughout the Kabbalah, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even in the Old Testament. Jewish scholars and mystics are still finding hidden meanings using Atbash. The Priory certainly would include the Atbash cipher as part of their teachings. So what Teving here is essentially telling us is that members of the Priory of Sanon would know how to decode an Atbash cipher which means that if members of the Priory of Sion are meant to be the ones finding this treasure and keeping it safe, it makes sense that an Atbash cipher would have been used and that they would incorporate it into their teachings as a secret society. Holla at Dan Brown for doing some research for us in his book. Yes, he, he, did, he did that indeed. Now, I mentioned the Priory of Sion, and we're actually going to jump right into this parallel between the Priory of Sion in the Da Vinci Code and the Freemasons in National Treasure. Aubrey, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Freemasons? I would love to. So we, <laughs> we will cover the Freemasons uh, in more detail in a later episode, but just know for now that the Freemasons are a very real society. They have notable historical figures that were said to have been members, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, both of the Roosevelts, and Andrew Jackson, among others that we actually hear about in the National Treasure film. But yeah, so for more on that, we will we'll go into that in detail in a later episode, but just know that they exist. 
And them existing is a key point here because I hate to tell you the Priory of Scion that is in the Da Vinci Code is not a real secret society. It was created by a man named Pierre Plantard in the 1950s. Now, the original mission of the group was that it was a local civic group that was concerned with public housing. And the story of this group soon spun completely out of control. So Planter had actually fabricated a series of documents that described the bloodline of Jesus Christ and hid them in different places throughout France, including one notable site, the French National Library. Now, how do we know that these documents were fake? Well, there are a few very sound reasons. First of all, forensic experts that have looked at these documents have said that they couldn't be more than 40 years old. So obviously, they weren't documents that have been hidden for centuries describing the bloodline of Jesus. Further, there are no mentions of the Priory of Sion in any literature before the year 1956, which really kind of hammers home that point that it was created in the 1950s. <laughs> Further, there has been evidence of letters between Plantard and his friends actually talking about how this was a hoax that they had made up. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, he confessed that he made it up. You could have led with that one. I could have, but I thought the (laughs) other ones were interesting too. So I wanted to get to them before revealing the the big one that would have made all the other ones uh, not up for consideration. Fair. Now, what's particularly interesting, even though the Priory of Sion is not a real society, it is worth mentioning that they do have notable grandmasters, supposedly, that were also from history, similar to how the members of the Freemasons come directly from history. So some of the grandmasters from this Priory of Sion would have been Leonardo da Vinci, Nicholas Flamel, Botticelli, and even Debussy. So actually, Dan Brown based a lot of his story for the Da Vinci Code on writings from groups that purport the Priory of Sion as being a real group. That's super interesting. And also sort of explains something that I found, (laughs) which is that Dan Brown has given several interviews suggesting that he really believes everything he wrote in his book. Now, of course, you know, the Professor Langdon story and Sophie and all of that, all of, you know, that action is the fiction part, but all of the historical background that he gave, he claims is true. He believes it's true. And as we mentioned before, that has led to a lot of criticism and debate, and it actually kind of blows my mind a little bit. But taking it one step further, or thinking about Dan Brown's thought process and belief in his writing suggests just a fundamental difference in the style of the Da Vinci Code versus National Treasure. So Da Vinci Code was a story written by an author who believed what he was writing was a true reflection of history, Mm. whereas... National Treasure was a story written in such a way that true historical bits and pieces were incorporated here and there as puzzle pieces, etc. But it was an ultimately fictional tale. Mm -hmm. So ultimately here, the Da Vinci Code purports to be true, while National Treasure absolutely does not. And I think it's also worth noting that 
several books have been written and TV specials <laughs> produced that have explicitly aimed to debunk the quote-unquote facts presented in the Da Vinci Code. Did you know that? I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that, actually, but now I kind of want to go and read those books and watch those TV specials. That sounds like a way of continuing the story for me. For sure. And to take this one step further, you know, Emily mentioned that Tom Hanks is the main male lead in the Da Vinci Code movie, and Tom Hanks has actually been quoted as saying, quote, the story we tell is loaded with all sorts of hooey and fun kind of scavenger hunt type nonsense, end quote. <laughs> and I just think that's so funny knowing Dan Brown's interpretation of his own story. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, but it's also worth noting that the National Treasure cast have given an almost completely opposite interpretation of their film. They they say that it's not historically true, which we know is correct, but they also claim that it gave them a greater appreciation of American history. Mm. So I just thought that was really interesting to, to point out. No, that that is super interesting, Aubrey. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that. That's great. So going Kind of off of that, let's move into kind of the films as they stand compared to one another. So something that I noticed, and I think you noticed as well, Aubrey, is that the films have very different tones. Yes, that is maybe the understatement of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very different. So National Treasure is really light and adventurous. I mean, it's a a Disney-produced film right? You're not going to get too, too dark there. Whereas The Da Vinci Code is much darker and much more serious. And I think this is portrayed in several ways, first and foremost being by the choice of the lead actor. Mm. I mean, think about it. Tom Hanks, he's known for these roles that have some seriousness, some gravitas, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, let's be real, love Nick Cage to death, but yeah, he, uh, he's known for literally the exact opposite. True. Quirkiness, light, fun, memeable, right? Memeable, yes, I like yeah. that. So that's really interesting to me. The actors really play a key role in differentiating the tones. Uh, the lighting of the filming is also really different. The Da Vinci mm-hmm. Code is really dark. Yeah, I don't know if there is a brightness setting that is high enough for you to be able to see everything uh, as clearly (laughs) as you might want to. Right? Whereas National Treasure is super bright. Even during some of the more serious or some of the dangerous scenes, like the chase scenes, even the chase scene that happens at night is (laughs) fairly well lit. Yes. A lot of street lights there. Exactly. So it's just, you know, little creative decisions that change the tone of the film. You know, you can even look at what starts off the stories being tonally very different. The Da Vinci Code, Emily, as you mentioned, it's launched by a murder. (laughs) True. In National Treasure, we kick things off with a legend and this fascination of a young child being told a story by his grandfather. Didn't, Didn't somebody die in the beginning of National Treasure, though? Wasn't that the whole reason the clue was passed on? Oh, Charles Carroll, yes, but but that's in a story being told by <laughs> a grandfather to his grandson Fair. and he's basically declaring him a knight. Yeah, true. So tonally very different. I think we can agree. Yes. Um, 
But, you know, there are a variety of similarities in the construction here when it comes to the characters. So Robert Langdon, Tom Hanks, is a Harvard professor who studies symbology. I would argue that Ben Gates should probably be a professor given his seemingly (laughs) endless knowledge of American history and practically archaeology. I would go as far to say that Ben Gates and Robert Langdon would be pretty good friends. They seem to have a lot in common. (laughs) Though, to be fair, if I remember correctly, Ben got a mechanical engineering degree from MIT. Mm. So we might have some Boston rivals here. Ooh, good point. You know? Um, But, okay, let's take it one step further. Let's move beyond this main character and go to the female protagonist. In both of these films, the main female protagonist is a professional a very smart person who becomes wrapped up in this treasure hunt, right? We have Abigail Chase, a national treasure. She's a federal archivist, right? She works at the National Archives. And then in the Da Vinci Code, we have Sophie, who is a police cryptographer. So these are people that I would argue are probably pretty well-respected in their respective fields. Mm-hmm. But in the films, they're being asked basically to turn on their professional affiliations, risking their careers and their professional names. Oh, that's a good point, Aubrey. And I actually have something to say on that. I I noticed that in both of these stories, not a lot of effort actually goes into making these women's characters strong female archetypes. So both of these characters are written as being kind of brought in on a larger quote-unquote conspiracy theory. Sophie, who in The Da Vinci Code, as you mentioned, is a cryptographer, suddenly finds that she can't figure out the first clue that her dead grandfather left her even though that's quite literally her job. (laughs) She actually becomes very dependent on Langdon in order to figure it out. And that's not his job. I don't love that. He's just a symbologist. (laughs) Now, Abigail is slightly less problematic in the clue figuring out department. She seems to be on the same page as Ben for a lot of the story. And in fact... Actually, I would argue that Abigail is shown to be Ben's equal several times in the movie, which I think is way better than what you've just said about Sophie becoming completely dependent on this male character. So for example, you can see Abigail being shown as Ben's equal symbolically in multiple instances in the film when her and Ben say the same words at the same time. Mm. And all of those quotes are about significant historical facts right so showing Mm -hmm. that they are knowledgeable history equals so for example in the first time that we meet her in her office at the national archives when her and ben simultaneously state what is at the bottom corner on the back of the declaration of independence right or in urban outfitters um when we have our big Riley moment with daylight savings time and, you know, Riley asks them who was the first one to suggest daylight savings time and Ben and Abigail again at the same exact time, say Benjamin Franklin. Mm. So I would actually argue that they're more equals in this movie. That's true. That, that is a good point, Aubrey. I will come with a slight counterpoint in sure. that. I think the representations of these female characters become problematic in both stories when it comes to the treasure 
at the end of the story. So while Ben and Abigail are very much treated as equals throughout the movie, I will give you that. That's very accurate. Abigail, as we see, is really quite instrumental in discovering the treasure. Totally. However, she doesn't get any credit for that discovery. Now, I'm thinking maybe this was her choice in order to help her preserve her name kind of within her field. But even if that's the case, it would have been nice to kind of have a quick cutscene about Mm -hmm. that where we could learn a little bit more about that. That's a great point. Then something in the Da Vinci Code is Sophie is in many respects quite literally part of the treasure. She (laughs) ends up being the thing that must be protected, right, by everyone else around her. In fact, she was kind of kept out of the loop about all of this for her entire life because her grandparents thought that she would ultimately be safer. So in writing a story like this, Dan Brown effectively gives Sophie no agency over herself or her story, which I found is just an interesting thing to look at when looking at the depiction of female characters in both of these stories. I I really like that point. Honestly, the more you talk about the depiction of female characters, especially in the Da Vinci Code, the more I take issue with the depiction in the Mm -hmm. Da Vinci Code. I never (laughs) thought of all of that. So I think that's that's just really poignant. Um, And I'm glad you you brought it up. So as we start to wind down in this conversation, you know, we've spent this this whole episode comparing and contrasting these two films. But some will argue that it is actually really unfair to compare them. You know, The Da Vinci Code is inherently a crime mystery movie, and National Treasure is action and adventure. So, you know, it's really unsurprising that when you make comparisons between the two or you ask someone, oh, pick one, you know, people are like, oh, I obviously like one way more than the other because they are really different fundamentally, Yeah. right? So I will say, in defense of National Treasure, people tend to find the rewatchability and fun factor of National Treasure to be greater. Might be because it's like way shorter than The Da Vinci Code. (laughs) Just going to throw that out there. But other interesting comparisons you'll find if you read different message boards or watch different fan uh, theory videos, etc. I'll just point out a couple of things that I think are interesting. You know, both of these films did pretty poorly with movie critics which i take issue with personally i take it personally um (laughs) but but audiences have tended to have a really different perspective audiences have generally loved national treasure some tend to have mixed feelings on the da vinci code especially when they start comparing these two films or when they start reckoning with what the da vinci code says about their faith as we said before, you'll also see people mention, and I think this is probably fair, that the Da Vinci Code has a deeper plot. So there's that as well. But what comes with the deeper plot is another criticism that the Da Vinci Code really takes itself too seriously. I don't know how you feel about that, Emily, but I think we can agree at least that National Treasure explicitly does not right it doesn't that is true it doesn't take itself seriously even the characters in the story almost recognize how ridiculous they sound right i mean think of the scene again with ben and riley in abigail's office for the first time the whole did bigfoot take it and (laughs) you know how ben is every time before he 
relays more information to Abigail, you see him sigh or pause. You see him considering what he's about to say. Like, I'm going to sound nuts. Right. right. So I think that's pretty fair. National Treasure does not take itself seriously. That's very true. Um, I've also seen people say that National Treasure is the American Da Vinci Code. Hmm. I, I would argue that Dan Brown also kind of wrote an American Da Vinci Code with his book, The Lost Symbol. Now, granted, this was written in 2009. So this actually could have been kind of based off of National Treasure, some might say. And this story actually focuses a lot on the Freemasons. And, you know, maybe we'll actually get a chance to revisit this in our episode on the Freemasons. You you never know. <laughs> I know you would enjoy doing that. Em. <laughs> I would also point out that the Da Vinci Code seems to celebrate European Renaissance artists, whereas National Treasure really celebrates the American Founding Fathers. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, we have a difference in the treatment of history here. National Treasure reveres history. We really talked a lot in our previous episode about how the writers wanted to pay their respects to American history in these films. Whereas I would argue that the Da Vinci Code attempts to overturn history in a way. Yeah, that's that's a fair assessment. And then something, just one other point that I saw this, I saw this in an article online, so I'm not gonna take credit for this, but I wanted to throw <laughs> it out there because I think you'll appreciate it, Emily. This article said that National Treasure, quote, turns a history geek into an action movie hero. And mm, there are some very real, true. there are some legit quotes in the National Treasure movie that that really lead you to accept that premise. Might I remind you of the quote, "I want to marry your brain." Gotta love a good love story. Or, "I'm sorry, I dropped you. I had to save the declaration." <laughs> okay, so so I I'll leave it there in terms of you know, criticizing or commenting on the comparisons between these films. But um, I, speaking of quotes, I know that you wanted to end this episode on, on some quotes that you seem to think are pretty poignant. I did. Yeah. Thank you. So the last thing that I really want to touch upon in this episode is the way that both of these stories recognize the problematic nature of history and how it's shaped. So we're having a lot of fun, you know, doing this podcast, but we're not unaware or deaf of the current challenges that this country faced. And I was very pleased to find some extremely relevant quotes in these two stories that I wanted to share in the hopes that they might provide you with an opportunity to reflect further on the nature of history. So the first quote comes from the book, The Da Vinci Code. And we have a quote from the key character, Teabing. He says, quote, History is always written by the winners. When two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated, and the winner writes the history books. Books which glorify their own cause and disparage the conquered foe. As Napoleon once said, What is history but a fable agreed upon? By its very nature, History is always a one-sided account. Nice. Now, I think that as a society, the recognition of this point is honestly critical, right? History is framed as two-toned with very little room for any gray area, right? There are winners and losers. There's a good guy and a bad guy. However, in light of recent events, 
considering and teaching parts of history that have often been occluded over centuries becomes exceedingly important. I, I would also point out, if if I can, that this is really exemplified if you just have a conversation with someone who was raised in a different part of the country of the United States than you were. I mean, I know that if you talk to people who grow up in different parts of the states, you know, different aspects of American history are taught very differently. Mm -hmm. You know, what certain wars are called, who was the aggressor, all of this and that. I think that just really demonstrates the fact that there are different perspectives on history, depending on who's telling the story. Indeed. Indeed. That's, that's a very good point, Aubrey. Yeah. And then kind of to close us out here, since we are, you know, a national treasure podcast after all, I wanted to leave us with a quote from national treasure. So here we actually have Ben when he's looking at the Declaration of Independence in the National Archives. And he says, quote, It means if there's something wrong, those who have the ability to take action have the responsibility to take action. Now, Ben, of course, was speaking in relation to the Declaration of Independence and America gaining freedom from England. However, this quote is still extremely relevant now. It suggests that history is essentially malleable and can be shaped by living people. This is something that's been seen a lot with all of the recent events that are happening in this country as people, you know, stand up and speak out. Here, Ben's suggesting that what we do matters. And if we keep in mind what Teabing said about how history is written, Hopefully what we do during these times will be accurately reflected in history. I'm really happy you ended on this. I think it's really poignant and it it lends some seriousness to these otherwise more fanciful films. Mm-hmm. And I think is a, a cool way to look at fictional films um, as being able to maybe inspire or inform the reality in which we live. So I like that. I think that's really cool. And I'm happy you were able to talk quotes since I know you love it so much. (laughs) Indeed. For sure. So um, I think think that just about does it for what we were hoping to cover today. Is that right? Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, first and foremost, I I would just like to give Emily a round of applause for... (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Wonderful guidance for this episode. You did your your uh, fandom for the Da Vinci Code justice. I will say that. <laughs> I, I learned a lot. We hope all of you listening learned a lot. Feel free, of course, to let us know your thoughts. And if there's something we missed or something you would like to expand upon, do reach out to us on social media. Where are they going to find us, Em? You will find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Absolutely. So, Contact us there and then come back for our next new episode, which will take a look very different for us, but I'm really (laughs) excited about this. It will take a look at how the National Treasure franchise is used in the classroom. Ooh, very fun. Especially because people like to make fun of the fact that there's no real history here, but we've obviously debunked that one already. We know it's not true. Absolutely. So you're not going to want to miss that. Don't forget to come back and uh, subscribe to our show wherever you listen to your podcast so that you don't miss it. And with that, I'm Aubrey. I'm Emily. 
And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. Thank you.